Welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. In Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Ecclesiastes chapter 6. And if you are looking for, if you want greater contentment in your life, you've come to the right place. Ecclesiastes. The word means preacher. And our generation, we have been conditioned like no previous generation before us uh, to become con- discontent uh, through advertisements. Uh, we are bombarded daily uh, by suggestions uh, that insist that satisfaction can only be attained through things that are in the world. To some level, we have all succumbed uh, to this sales pitch. And while Jesus was tested in the wilderness over a period of 40 days, uh, he was both hungry and thirsty, uh, ex- exposed, very tired. Satan made an offer to him. Jesus was tested. As we are each tested, and you can find this recorded in Matthew chapter 4. And there we read in verse 8, The devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him the world, all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to Jesus, All these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. And in doing so, Jesus refused to take the bait. They were not going down that road. King Solomon, oh, he took the bait. He took the bait. He had amassed more world than any predecessor before him, any man who'd ever lived. And he discovered, as we've learned in this book, these first six chapters, it just left him feeling empty. Left him empty. And in this book titled Ecclesiastes, this preacher has he's chronicled his own failed experiences, his failed experiment in life. He does it so that you and I don't have to fail by duplicating it. Solomon drank the world's Kool-Aid before I was a Christian. I drank the Kool-Aid. Sometimes would guzzle the Kool-Aid. In fact, even after renewal and regeneration by God's Spirit, uh, made alive alive to Christ, Christians still are dwelling in in a sinful flesh that thirsts for a sip every once in a while, doesn't it? That flesh wants a sip of the world. Yet in 1 John 3, verse 15, we are commanded. It says, do not agape the world, nor the things in the world. Uh, the word agape, therefore love, it, it, uh, it denotes a strong affection for, a loving attention for the world. John says, refuse to do it. Don't do it. And, and the question that we have as Christians is so often, Okay, I understand, but how? How do I forsake this love affair that I have with the world? It's going on in my flesh. So the Apostle John, he he answers the question. He answers the question in that same passage by telling us how. And there he writes again in uh, 1 John chapter 3. He said, the world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. One way that we break our affection for the world, our adoration for this world, is by recognizing it's all passing away. It's all going to be gone. We're not. We are going to continue to live, those of us who are redeemed in Christ, with our Father and His Son and the Holy Spirit. And Christians become confident of this passing away of the world Through Scripture. This is our confidence that it has been written. The Scriptures are authority. We observe this as scriptural revelation. Uh, The the famous theologian, Neil Sedaka, 
He's the one who once said, uh, breaking up is hard to do, right? Down, doobie, do, down, down. Yeah. But it can be a slow process. A slow process. But I can honestly say, through the Spirit, through the Word of God, the understanding of this world and how it's going to pass away, uh, as many of you, I, I know you join me today in being honest that, that we look forward with delight toward the day that this world will pass away. We look towards it with delight. Second Peter 3 and verse 10 assures us that the day of the Lord's return, it will arrive suddenly. It'll be like a thief. It'll be a day in which the current heavens and earth will pass away, be destroyed with intense heat. Therefore, Peter reminds Christians, just as the Apostle John, he reminds Christians that we are, according to God's promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's going to be a good day. That's something to look forward to. And the Apostle John declares, you know, the world is passing away and also its lusts. It's going to be gone. Boy, that, that just, for me, that oozes spiritual optimism. It's all going to be gone. But that, that's feel-good theology, folks. Want something that will make you feel good? This world and all of its lusts, they're going to pass away. The season is going to change and we will dwell with Christ. You know, I, I, really, I cannot wait until every nagging lust of the flesh, every persistent uh, nagging lust is, is eradicated, taken out of the way that we might dwell with Christ on a new earth in righteousness that's going to be created for us to enjoy. Not to amass and to collect, but to enjoy by God. And all who have trusted in God and in His Son, Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, uh, they are going to have access, full access to all of the blessings of God without the nagging lust, without the sinful desires to collect all of this stuff for ourselves. That is going to be a wonderful day. A wonderful, wonderful day. Uh, away with this persistent yearnings of always wanting more. That makes me feel good. It makes me feel good. The promise that sinful lust will pass away, it offers a contentment that is only available through Christ. Only through the knowledge of Jesus Christ can we come to this contentment. For Adam sinned when he first drank the Kool-Aid. I think that was probably fruit flavored of some kind. Maybe apple flavored or something like that. Adam sinned. Solomon sinned, we have sinned, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And each of us has our own beloved flavor, don't we? Everybody has their own beloved flavor of the world's Kool-Aid. But after the eternal Son of God became flesh, made incarnate through a virgin, as we spoke earlier during the scripture reading, and when he was at his weakest physical state, after 40 days in the wilderness, hungry, Satan offered him the world. What was Jesus' reply? No thanks. I am not thirsty. No way, no how. And in John 6.38, he victoriously declared, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of my Father who sent me, and this is the will of Him who sent me, that that of all that He has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. And Jesus promises, I myself will raise Him up on the last day. Hallelujah! Where each of us have failed, Christ has prevailed. He never sinned. He suffered and He died on the cross. He, bear, he bears the penalty and the scars of all of our sins. And He offers us full reconciliation to the Father uh, through the Son. Uh, folks, 
for those of us who He chose from before the foundation of the world, there awaits for us an eternity in paradise. That's the promise that, made, uh, that Jesus made to the thief on the cross. Today you will be with me in paradise. That, that's what's awaiting us. It doesn't get any better than that. Satan's offer is of this world. Have it now, have all you want, enjoy it. It is a shady deal. It is a shady deal. It cannot satisfy. It's like, maybe um, you were raised up north as I was. It's like you go to one of those old used car lots without lighting. It's just kind of dark place. And you get this car that looks really shiny. Got a nice coat of paint on it. And you take it home. A couple weeks later, the fenders start falling out from underneath it. You know what I'm talking about? All filled up with Bondo, right? Because the salt had eaten it up. It's a shady deal. This world is a shady deal. It does not deliver. But through the wisdom of the Word and and the washing of the Holy Spirit through the regeneration in Christ, we can choose to be content. We can choose to be content until Christ comes. Paul gave us this key. And we saw it in our earlier scripture reading. He said, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Oh, what a day that will be. When my Jesus, I shall see. You know, Paul does not oversell God's provision, God's promise of, of this contentment that is offered through Christ. Paul doesn't oversell it. In, in Philippians 4 verse 12, the apostle writes this from prison. He says, I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know, more often than not today when we see that, that verse quoted, it, it is in conjunction with some kind of human achievement. Some human accomplishment of some kind. A victory. Some kind of championship. With the subtitle, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Holding a trophy uh, of some sort of athletic or other championship. Rarely, not near as often, do we hear it in conjunction with, I can withstand hunger through Christ who strengthens me. I can battle against cancer through Christ who strengthens me. Or I can even endure and suffer imprisonment for the gospel of Jesus Christ through Him who strengthens me. And that is the context of the verse. Paul is imprisoned. And he is joyfully enduring because he has a hope in what is to come. Our hope is in the future, not in the world today. And Paul writes, he says, I have learned... So that I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. We don't have to gain the fading world to be content. Uh, this the apostle says, I had to learn. Even the apostle had to, to learn this, to be content in every circumstances. And the Holy Spirit taught him uh, through the wisdom of Scripture and through the truth of God... And the Spirit teaches us in the exact same way. We are sanctified. We are set apart to God. We are made holy. Prepared for His service by the Holy Word of God. That's how we're prepared for the life that we have to endure. Folks, we summon this holy... It is a holy conviction that we have of the life that is to come. And we summon this. We... we, We gather this as we're gathered together. As the preacher 
actually, as the preacher taught back in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1, when we draw near to listen. When we come together to listen to the Word of God together, the Bible functions as a fountain of contentment, a fountain of it uh, springing up into eternal life. And instead of the Kool-Aid, Christ supplies the living water. As he promised the woman at the well in John chapter 4, he gives us the words of eternal life. When many were defecting and leaving because they weren't getting enough bread or an endless supply of bread in the Gospel of John, uh, many defected, many departed from Christ. And the disciples, the twelve, were there and Jesus asked, he said, will you two go? Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. These are the promises that we receive through Scripture. The the Bible, the teaching of the Word of God as we gather together, as we encourage one another together in the corporate assembly of the church is where we learn these truths about Christ and we encourage one another. I truly doubt When it comes to contentment, I truly doubt that any Christian who habitually dismisses church, I truly doubt that they can find any contentment. I don't know where else you would find it. The Kool-Aid of the world cannot give contentment. You know, an unbeliever as well, he should not be able to find contentment in the church. An unbeliever should not be, one who is not regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God, he should not be able to find contentment in the church. He should be discontent. And juxtaposed to that, the believer should not be able to find contentment in the world. It should be impossible to find contentment in the world for those who know Christ. As we take a sweeping overview of Ecclesiastes chapter 6 today, Let's not forget the background that we're looking at or what we've studied. Solomon had just shared in the final final three verses of chapter 5 that we should enjoy with satisfaction and thanksgiving whatever God has set before us. That we should have joy, we should be filled, we should be happy, whether it's little or whether it's much, whether it's filet mignon or Wendy's Big Bag Combo. Be content with what is sitting before you. And when we acknowledge that we have plenty, when we acknowledge to the Lord with gratitude that we have plenty, God then occupies our hearts with gladness. He keeps us busy with with His work. And then He gives us a contentment that the world can never find. In Psalm 37, verse 25, the, uh, the King David after many, many years of being on the throne in Israel, this would be Solomon's dad, uh, he said, you know, I have been young and now I am old, but I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his children begging bread. What a promise of righteousness and contentment uh, that is given in the Psalms. Also, as we look at chapter 6, Note that there were originally no chapter breaks in the Bible and that Solomon has already informed us at the end of chapter 5 that we can be content. We can find joy and satisfaction in what we have. It's not found on a billboard. It's not found sitting in our neighbor's driveway. There is no contentment there. Sitting right under our noses, says Solomon. And with whatever provision that God gives us day to day, we are to be generous, we are, be, uh, we are to be ready to share. And folks, this is the wisdom of God. This is God's will for your life. Be content with what you have, share that which is excess. That's the end of chapter 5. Be content, enjoy the wonderful bounty God has given you. By contrast now, in chapter 6, it describes the tragedy of accrued wealth, Hoarded, is the way it was described in the last chapter. Hoarded wealth without God, God's wisdom. And for the man or the woman without reconciliation to God, who does not know God, this life under the sun 
offers no contentment or enjoyment. For those who do not know God, there is no current joy and there is no future contentment. There's nothing. And you don't know God. That's what we're going to learn today. No matter how much you accumulate throughout this life, you're still just going to die. That's what's going to happen. Happy Mother's Day, by the way. <laughs> oh, this is good. It's going to remind us of uh, what we have been saved from. Again, in contrast to uh, contentment, this passage describes wealth without wisdom. Beginning in verse 1, There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is prevalent among men. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor, so that his soul lacks nothing at all of what he desires, yet God has not empowered him to eat from them. For a foreigner, or your translation might say stranger, for a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity and a severe affliction. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, however many they may be, but his soul is not satisfied with good things, and he does not even have a proper burial, then I say, better is the miscarriage than he. For it comes in futility and goes into obscurity, and its name is covered in obscurity. It never sees the sun, and it never knows anything. It is better off than he. Even if the man lives a thousand years twice and does not enjoy good things, do not all go to one place. All a man's labor is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage does the wise man have over the fool? What advantage does the poor man have, knowing how to walk before the living? Oh, what the eyes see is better than what the soul desires. This too is futility and a striving after the wind. Whatever exists has already been named, and it is known what man is, for he cannot dispute with him who is stronger than he is. For there are many words which increase futility What then is the advantage to a man? For who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, during the few years of his futile life? He will spend them like a shadow. For who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? Again, this chapter has portrayed, uh, portrayed, excuse me, wealth without God's wisdom. Wealth without the benefit of wisdom. Last chapter at the end was wisdom. To begin with, the evil in verses 1 through 3, it's not presented as rare. It's not rare. It's common. It's presented as commonplace. Uh, NASB says it's prevalent among men. The ESV says this evil, it's heavy on mankind. Reference to the mankind in the ESV uh, rightly implies that, that this is something that plagues all of humanity. Plagues everybody. It's common throughout the whole human race. And the evil is this. The evil is this. Verse 1. God bestows riches, blessing, and honor. Yet fallen man does not possess in himself the ability to be truly satisfied. You can have everything. But man himself does not possess the capacity to become truly satisfied. And for every man or woman who is a celebrity, famous, uh, has fortune, perhaps prestige, a position of honor of some kind, God must grant the soul contentment. Only God can, can give the human heart contentment. No matter who you are, uh, Daniel 2 verse 21 assures that God removes kings. He establishes kings. uh, He places powerful 
the powerful in their positions and the wealthy and the powerful, they may benefit, as we learned last chapter, from a dynasty. They might enjoy all kinds of wealth and money and prestige, acquire all that the world contains, yet ultimately forfeit their soul. Even without God, their esteemed positions of honor commonly become a lonesome misery. How do I know they're lonely? Because verse 3 implies that, well, nobody even wants to attend their funeral. Wow. They don't receive a proper burial. But that is considered in the Bible a curse. It's a curse. The guy is rich, but nobody actually liked him. Sound like somebody you'd like to be? Look a little closer. You know, concern for a person's corpse, as we studied in in Luke, the way that uh, Christ's body was handled, uh, accompanied by a grief, a proper grief for the person who's passed away, it serves as a pretty accurate barometer of the type of influence that you were to others while you were alive. Think about that. It's a barometer of how a person was received in life. Received by those who knew him or her. I've thought a little bit about this. As I was sick last week, I got to think about it for another week again. I hope that somebody cares for at least 72 hours after I die. Really? You lay them in the ground? Why would I like that? Well, it, it, would, it would be an indicator that my life had been important to other people. That, I, that my life had added some kind of value to others. Would you all come to my funeral? Consider this a formal invitation. You're all welcome to come. Be an open invitation. We'll keep it that way. But, but Christians need to consider the reason there used to be big funerals. If you're from parts of the country that remember where the whole town would go to a funeral, and Christians need to consider a return to these big funerals. You know, our surrounding culture is abandoning funerals. Did you notice that? Just abandoning. Do you recognize why? Think about this. Because nobody cares. Far too often, he or she who perished made no lasting impact on others. Nobody remembers them when they're gone. It's growing more and more common today that people in the U.S., that they die with a whole lot of money, but they have no friends to attend their funeral. We have become that disconnected. Yeah, it's sad. It's a sad state. Do you know what could be just as bad or, or perhaps even worse? It's when a celebrity dies and because they were famous, a whole bunch of people attend their funeral and it becomes a social event. And the attendees, those who come some of whom didn't even know the deceased, they offer eulogies protesting climate change or maybe promoting some other political agenda at somebody's funeral. At a person's funeral? (laughs) You can't get a whole lot more disrespectful than that. Not receiving a proper burial. Not receiving a funeral uh, was a sign that that person's life was a curse. Um, folks, uh, and attending a funeral, we often say this, and it is true, it is not for the dead, but it is a comfort for the living. But it's not only a comfort for the living. It is a chance 
uh, an opportunity to make a public acknowledgement that this person made an, a positive impact in my life. They mattered to me. You know, e- even unbelievers used to take off from work to attend a funeral. Forfeit pay if they had to, but as Christ prophesied in Matthew 24, 24 verse 12, the love of many, it has waxed cold. Waxed cold. That's what we're seeing in this verse, in this passage. The love has waxed cold. Now, we should strive as Christians to be strikingly different from the world. That we would have love and that we would love the brethren. I've been thinking about this and, and the people that I love. And the people in this church in particular. I'm not going to give names. I'm looking forward at some point in time to do their funeral. To honor them for the wonderful blessing that they have been in my life. Thought of a couple names. I think I will buy plane tickets to fly just to go to somebody's funeral. In verse 2, speaking of the rich man, God did not empower him to eat from his riches and wealth for a, a foreigner or stranger gets to enjoy them. You know, this statement, it could refer back to God's punishment, his judgment for hoarding wealth back in chapter 5. In ver- there in verses 13 and 14, we see that the man did not share what he had. And God took it from him. In that illustration, it was through a bad investment. Remember? A couple weeks ago? Here it appears that it could be that he lost it because God took his life. That's a bad investment too. The man could not enjoy or share what he had because God didn't grant him the grace. The man's heart was not generous. He did not extend his hand to the needy. He wasn't known as generous. So nobody laments when he's dead. Nobody really cares. And and completely unrelated strangers are going to consume the estate for him. It'll be shared. But it wasn't shared while you were alive. Boy, good job, buddy. Talk about finishing strong, huh? No. No. No finishing strong there. This preacher, this is how he responds. This is a wow. This is a wow right here. This is how the preacher responds to that. Oh, this is vanity and a severe affliction. Emptiness and affliction describe the experience of a fallen race under God's curse, no matter how much money you have. It's a severe affliction. And even for the man or woman who by God's grace do prosper, the unbelieving man and woman, apart from God's redemption of sins, they discover it is impossible to find contentment in this world. You're never going to have it. If you don't know Christ, you'll never find it. President of Wheaton College, Philip Ryken, writes this, quote, The gifts that God gives us and the power to enjoy those gifts come separately. This is why having more money can never guarantee that we will find any enjoyment. Without God, we will still be discontent. It is only when we keep Him at the center of our existence that we experience, experience real joy in the gifts that God may give, unquote. It is only through God that we can enjoy a contentment in this world. Finding contentment, it, it demands a satisfaction that, that responds in worshiping the living God. If it doesn't result in that, life's only vanity. It's, it's meaningless. It's, it's emptiness. Solomon says it's a severe affliction to be in that state, to not know God and to be in this world. And that quest to find satisfaction in the trappings of the world, it's a cruel hoax that plays again and again on your TV and your radio and on the internet. 
It is a cruel hoax. Any suggestions that you're going to find contentment? If it's not found in Christ, it's never going to be found, folks. It will never be found apart from redemption. And though God's goodness, it may be on display to the heathen, it will be displayed to the heathen, uh, made evident through God's abundant provision that He gives uh, to the good and to the wicked. God's goodness is on display. Their depraved mind refuses to respond in worship. No matter how full their stomachs are, how much they, they have been blessed financially or with health and prosperity and celebrity, they don't respond in worship. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God nor give Him thanks. That's the state of Romans chapter 1. Total depravity. Total depravity. This is the experience that an unregenerated person has. Complete emptiness. Whose soul, verse 3, is never satisfied with good things. Traveling through this world, traveling through this world as an unbeliever, Oh, what a severe affliction. That is a severe affliction. Do you know what Solomon concludes? In verse 3, he concludes, better off is the miscarriage. Yes, that is intended to shock us. But it is also true. For it comes in futility and goes into obscurity, and its name is covered in obscurity. It never sees the sun and never knows anything. It is better off than he. The worst case scenario for a human being, the worst case is to grow to maturity, to human maturity, but never come into relationship with the living God. That is the worst thing that can happen to a soul. To grow up in this world and never know Christ. He or she therefore gains no ultimate satisfaction in this life. You can't find it apart from God. And no redemption of their soul for the next life. Boy, that's sad. Not being able to enjoy this life. He's given us as a gift lots of things to share with one another and no redemption of the soul in the next. That's tragic. That that is a worst case scenario. That is vanity. It's emptiness. Jesus in Matthew 24 verse 26 said this of Judas Iscariot who by the way betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. If you were in Pastor Weiler's study this morning in Bible Life Group, he went on to explain that, you know what, 30 pieces of silver was back then. It wasn't a huge sum. It was the price of a slave. What Judas Iscariot basically said in the Pharisees, this guy has no value. Wow. Talk about value. And Jesus said of... Judas, the Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. Be better. It'd be better. We who have by God's grace matured into adulthood and are now saved through trusting in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ... God has spared us from the worst possible affliction. He has spared us from the world. Boy, if we could only appreciate, begin to appreciate how, how precious God's gift of salvation is, what He has saved us from, boy, we'd worship. We would sing. We would laugh. 
we would rejoice. We would hug. This is a wonderful salvation that we have that has spared us from this world. Boy, that's good news. You can almost refer to the gospel as good news. Boy, that is great news. Wonderful news. What is it like? What is salvation through Christ like? Well, let me, let me think here, see if I can come up with something. You know, it's, all, it's, it's almost like a merchant who is seeking some fine pearls and uh, he came across a pearl of great price. And when he returned home, he sold everything that he had and he went out and he bought it. He gave it all up. And he gave it all up for Christ. Man, it's valuable. It's very valuable. Those who have trusted in Jesus Christ out of no merit of our own, nothing we have done, we've passed from death into life. I believe it's implied in this passage as well that in some mysterious way, a miscarriage as well has also received the grace of God. But, in verse 6, even if the other man lives a thousand years twice and does not enjoy good things, do not all go to one place. Of course, it's hyperbole. Long life in the Old Testament was a sign of God's blessing. Having a quiver full of many children, as we see in the passage, maybe even a hundred children, it's a sign of God's blessing. And all of these good things God supplies. But here there's no reconciliation. For all a man's labor is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not satisfied. What a state. You know, the Hebrew word there in verse 7 for appetite, it's literally soul. It's the same word as given in verse 2 and throughout the Old Testament for soul. It's a typical Hebrew word for soul. How sad it is when the mouth is full, but the soul is empty. When the appetite is not satisfied. Does an unsatisfied soul describe you? Your soul is empty. The preacher asks this. Says this of an empty soul. What advantage does a wise man have over the fool, if that's the case? What advantage does the poor man have? Knowing how to walk before the living. It doesn't matter whether you are rich, whether you are poor, whether you are wise, whether you are stupid. Even if you learned to articulate yourself with dignity before men. If you learned how to walk before men. Many of all stripes have lived long lives and have been admired by men. But when it comes to the grave, none enjoy an advantage. All go to the same place. All of those other things are unimportant apart from Christ and redemption. Interpretation. No matter who you are or what you do, you're not going to get out of this life alive. Not going to happen. Unless Christ comes first. By the way, I was speaking to, to Angelo. We were talking yesterday morning up here, just looking. We did take a quick peek, peek up at the sky, didn't we? Thinking, I wonder if it's today. Boy, that would be nice if it was today. Christ would come back, take us into His loving mercy. But here's... Here's the explanation for no matter who you are or what you do, you're not going to get out alive. You're not going to win. You're not going to hoist the trophy if you don't know God. Uh, And verse 10, there is still nothing new under the sun. Whatever exists has already been named, and it is known what man is but a breath. For man cannot dispute with God, who is stronger than he is, For there are many words which increase futility. 
What then is the advantage of the man? For who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, during the few years of his futile life. He will spend them like a shadow. For who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? So again, this is having wealth without wisdom. Before you come into relationship with God, you have to recognize the futility of life without Him. Life is passing away. It is vanity. And folks, you've got to break off your love affair with the world. That is the next step if you have not yet done so. You've got to break off the love affair with the world. You've got to call her up and say, Honey, it isn't working out. This isn't going to go. And in verse 12, 10 to 12, Solomon uses here a few colorful expressions uh, to amplify the futility of trying to hold on to this relationship that is not going to work out. It could almost be like your breakup letter with the world if you wanted to right here. Okay? First he says, there is nothing new. Whatever exists has already been named. There's nothing new that can be done. Uh, There's too much water under the bridge. Taking a long vacation together isn't going to help. There isn't going to be anything new that's going to fix this. Next he says, well, life is short, and I'm going to need to move on. Verse 10, it is known what man is. Solomon said back at the beginning of the book, man is what? Is a breath. Man is a breath, actually a half a breath. The word able, vanity of vanity is all of vanity. And the word able, it just means an exhale. Half a breath. That's what Solomon says man is. The Apostle James actually refers to us a little more polite, like a vapor. Half a breath or vapor, take your choice. Next in verse 10, Solomon declares... You know, you also can't dispute with God who is in control and stronger. That personal pronoun that you see there, him, it should be capitalized in verse 10. It means there's no use trying to talk this out. There's no use being futile in words and and trying to argue your way out of this and find reasons and ways to preserve your relationship with the world. God's word is final. Resistance is futile to what is being taught. God is stronger. Don't argue with Him. His his scriptures are true. It is reliable. Don't make excuses for what the Word of God says. Didn't you talk about that this morning too? People want to make the Word into whatever they want it to be. They argue with God. Then in verse 12, Solomon says... Well, notice how the few years of life that we have, well, they pass like a shadow. Our lifespan, he's saying it's, well, it's it's like an afternoon. It's a shadow that passes. In a few hours, the sun is going to set. It's going to be all gone. Shadow is going to be gone. And then finally, since God is in sovereign control over human history, he says, For who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? You ain't going to control the world or your estate or anything after you're gone. There's no way you can do it. What comes next after you're dead, you are incapable of preserving any sort of lasting legacy after you're gone. When you're done, you're done. I've heard that they're going to tear down Neverland. All right? Who had more money back in the day than Michael Jackson? More fame, more prestige, built this huge park worth many, many tens of millions of dollars. I heard it sold for pennies on the dollar later on. And I think they're going to knock it down. Well, you could build, no matter what you're doing on your estate, with your family name, uh, uh, big beams buried in concrete, Having six feet of concrete and big names and the family crest on the front of your property. Once you're gone, what's the next owner going to do? Oh, he's going to tear that down. 
It ain't going to last. You ain't going to be able to control what goes on after your life has passed. So instead of trying to fight to save this life, as so many have tried, and instead of trying to hold tight to this world, let it go. Just let it go. Wealth without the satisfaction that only God can give. Well, it's kind of like, well, verse 9 says, striving after the wind. Trying to catch the wind. You can never really get a grip on it. Never really get a hold, no matter how long you live or how much you have. There's a, there's a, there's a saying out there that says, He who dies with the most toys loses. <laughs> Hoarded it through life. Kept it to himself. Dies and nobody attends the funeral. Oh, what a sad state. There is a better way. Break up the world and break up with the world and enjoy what God has given you today. That is the lesson. Enjoy what you have, the wonderful blessings that are sitting in front of you. In fact, it says in verse 9, what the eyes see is better than what the souls desire. God's in control. He knows precisely what you need to be spiritually healthy. He knows exactly how much you need. And 1 Timothy 6 verse 17 says, God richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Enjoy what you have. So the phrase, what the eyes see is better than what the soul desires, means that it would be better to be satisfied with what you have. What is sitting on the table, your plate in front of you, that is better than always being preoccupied with what you don't have. Always preoccupied with what others have. It's called covetousness. Equals idolatry, according to the Apostle Paul. Oh, it's just better to love what you have, enjoy what you have, share what you have for the time that you're here. Because the world is passing away, and also its lusts. And Paul declares, we've brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. This takes us back to where we began at the end of chapter 5. Whether you have little or whether you have much, Solomon says, enjoy what you have today and be generous and ready to share